Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on March 17th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. Remember fusion? Not cold fusion, real, regular old fusion. It was going to solve all our energy needs. Well, Scientific American staff editor Michael Moyer has an article in the March issue of the magazine about the current state of fusion called Fusion's False Dawn. We'll talk to him, and we'll talk to Editor-in-Chief Mariette DiCristina about some of the rest of what's in the March issue. But first up, Michael Moyer. Michael, let me just read the subhead of the article, Fusion's False Dawn. Scientists have long dreamed of harnessing nuclear fusion, the power plant of the stars, for a safe, clean, and virtually unlimited energy supply. Even as a historic milestone nears, skeptics question whether a working reactor will ever be possible. So let's, first of all, talk about fission versus fusion very quickly, because some people might not be aware of the difference because fission reactors exist all over the place. And and also we'll talk about the, what that historic milestone is. And then we'll talk about why it's possible we may never get fusion. Yeah, fission reactors, as you say, are all over the place. And those work by the splitting of heavy uh, atoms such as uh, uranium and more rarely plutonium to produce energy. Fission is in the opposite of that. It's a it's a it is an atomic nuclear reaction, but it is the combination of two very light elements, uh, generally hydrogen, uh, that come together and produce helium, and then they also produce a lot of energy. And the energy comes from the basic fact that um, a helium is slightly lighter than two hydrogens put together. So that excess energy has to go somewhere via Einstein's equals mc squared. The excess mass gets converted into energy. Yes, excuse me. The the excess mass gets converted into energy and quite a bit of energy, uh, as anyone who's ever seen one of those film reels of hydrogen bombs can attest. That is just a little bit of hydrogen converted into helium, and wow. So that's what we're talking about. And hydrogen is available in bounteous supply, so it would be a wonderful thing. Hydrogen, most uh, common element in the universe, and obviously we have it all over the place, not just in the atmosphere, but in the water. In order to make a uh, workable fusion, we actually, uh, scientists use isotopes of hydrogen, hydrogen itself just has a proton at its nucleus. Uh, if you have a proton and a neutron, that's called deuterium. If you have a proton and two neutrons, that's tritium. And for various uh, technical reasons, it's much easier to make deuterium and tritium come together um, to produce fusion. Okay, so that's fusion. What's the historic milestone that's coming up? So for many years, ever since World War II, when people realized the power inherent here, they've dreamed of making a controlled fusion experiment. Control basically means it doesn't explode. It it uh, uh, it just uh, moves along slowly and produces uh, heat. And you can then use that heat, and they've been working on this for decades and decades now, and getting closer and closer to the point where they're producing actually more energy than it than they put in to the experiment. It's very hard to push uh, these two um, uh, deuterium and tritium nuclei together because they have this repulsive force. They're both positively charged. And so getting them close enough to fuse is very, very difficult. And there's been a lot of different strategies for how to do that. Uh, and it uh, it takes a lot of energy to make them come together. Um, for the first time, 
maybe later this year, more more likely next year, uh, the National Ignition Facility, which is in Livermore, California, uh, is expected to finally create more energy from their fusion reactions than they put in, which is called break-even or ignition, and it's really a, a historic milestone. People have been working on this for, for half a century now. Despite all that, we're, we're nowhere near a fusion reactor that would supply electricity for big populations, and it looks like some people think we may never actually get there. Well, uh, here's the thing. The, in theory, you think to yourself, okay, now we're getting more energy out than we're putting in. Loop some of that energy back around. You have this uh, uh, multiplicative effect. Um, and then suddenly you're able to get a reactor, which you're just putting in basically seawater and kind of getting out on the other side as much energy as you want to. You know, this is the world's energy problem solved. This is limitless energy. All we have to do is kind of get past this break-even point and learn how to control it. Um, that is not true for a lot of reasons, one of which is that the, the break-even that the National Ignition Facility is going to be achieving is really just the energy that is going directly into um, the the reaction. So the way the National Ignition Facility works, it's this amazing structure. I went and was able to visit it. Um, it's the most powerful laser in the world, three football fields in size, and they uh, generate this laser, and then they focus all the lasers down. They split it apart into 142 different little lasers, or, you know, not little, but smaller, and then they focus it onto a little pellet of deuterium and tritium, and then that pellet, the outsides of the pellet kind of explode, and that pushes the insides ever closer together, and that is what creates your fusion reaction. It's really just this marvelous, marvelous experiment. But in the accounting that they do, and they're very clear about this, it's just the uh, energy of the lasers that are actually going in and hitting the pellet. There's a lot of losses in the system that come from generating the lasers themselves, so we're not there yet. More importantly... Now you have all this energy coming out, all this fusion energy coming out, and how do you then convert that into energy that we can use? Um, how do you make that um, boil water and spin a turbine and have that generate electricity that then goes out through, through the grid? And what is the form of the energy that comes out right now? So the... Energy in a, in a fusion reaction is mostly in the form of neutrons. Now, neutrons, um, you know, uh, one of the atomic constituents of matter, um, they're called neutrons because they're neutral. They don't interact um, with uh, via the electromagnetic force. Um, uh, they don't have a charge. So you have all these neutrons coming out. They're very energetic. They've got all this energy, and they're blasting out through the sides of your chamber. Now, you've got to somehow convert that into boiling water. How do you do it? Well, you've got to have this design around it, what's called a blanket. And what the hope is, is that the neutron will go out and the blanket is made of some very uh, thick uh, steel type material. And every so often, a neutron will just hit a, uh, an atomic nucleus in the steel blanket. And that hit will then make the steel hotter. And that hot steel, then you have yeah, uh, almost in a car, like in a car engine, you have that uh, uh, some fluid, some water could work going through the steel. It it takes the energy away. That water is hot. It goes in and spins your turbine. Okay, that's great. Problems. Sometimes the neutron goes out and hits a uh, nucleus of uh, of the blanket, and instead of just ringing it like a bell, it goes and one of the steel uh, atoms. Uh, 
absorbs the neutron. Now, this makes it a uh, different material. It makes it brittle. It makes it radioactive. Any blanket they're uh, figuring out from the common materials wouldn't have a very long life. Um, another actually huge problem that they have, and probably the core problem that people are most worried about, as we said before, there's two elements that you have to have going into a fusion reaction, deuterium and tritium. Deuterium is very common. It's an element of seawater. You can, you can find it. Tritium is not common. Tritium is very difficult to make. It's uh, radioactive itself. Um, and um, right now, it's, you can make it in uh, ordinary fission reactors, but only a very little bit and only at very high costs. Once you get one of these power plants going and up and running, you're going through kilograms and kilograms and kilograms of this tritium, and you have to find a way to actually make tritium in this blanket at the same time that you're extracting energy. And so in order to do that, you have to have all these other components in your blanket. You have to have lithium. You have to have, and you have to have some of the neutrons hit lithium ions. And then it has to go through a cascade of reactions so that the lithium goes and produces tritium and helium. And then you have to extract the tritium from the blanket. And then you have to do all the, it's just this huge, huge engineering feat that People aren't really sure of how they're going to solve right now. They haven't demonstrated that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, and so even as we get to this point where we get to break even, now people are saying, okay, look, we've been working on this problem of, of making fusion reactions happen, controlling plasmas. Plasmas are these very odd materials uh, when you heat things up to very high temperatures and it's hard to control them. Um, we're kind of getting this. Uh, in addition to NIF, there's this other program called ITER, which is out in Europe, which is um, uh, will also be able to create controlled fusion reactions at above break-even. That's going to be going online in maybe 15 years or so. They're building it right now. Now that we've done this, how are we going to make a workable power plant? And those problems are much more severe than anyone's been talking about. The last section of your article is subheaded The Big Lie, but it's uh, it's not about propaganda. What is it about? So The Big Lie, um, once you take all these uh, ideas into account, um, then you have to consider, are we going to be able to make these reactors and are we going to be able to make them work at a cost that is effective, that is uh, able to compete with whatever other options we have in 30, 40, 50 years and longer. And so people are starting to ask hard questions. For instance, with the NIF program, uh, as we said before, there are these little pellets in the center that all these lasers have to hit. So, but this is, it's, it's really a, uh, an issue where it's a blast. You have the lasers come and hit the pellet and the pellet explodes in a way, you know, fuses together. Um, now, okay, so that was one. Now you want to kind of do this continuously. So you've got to kind of cycle things through. And you almost, it's a machine gun approach. You got to have these pellets coming in and blast, 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 blast. Right now, NIF is only set up to kind of run one blast every four or five hours or something like that. Um, but, uh, but you start to do this. As Ed Moses, the director of NIF, told me, you know, you have a 600 RPM machine. You start to create a lot of energy. Well, so then you ask the question, how much does the fuel cost? How much are these pellets? And NIF doesn't release the cost of their pellets, and they are making them on site there. But there are other people making similar pellets that have to be exquisitely machined, you know, down to uh, micrometers. And right now the estimates are that they're, you know, somewhere on the order of about a million dollars a pellet. 
As opposed to a nickel a pellet. As opposed to a nickel, which is where they have to go. And, they, and, and you know, Dr. Moses will say, hey, we have to get this cost down. He's very optimistic that they're going to be able to get it all the way down. But, but look, that's a, that's a lot of orders of magnitude. You've got to get that pellet cost down. Now, we have seen the price of certain entities fall by that many orders of magnitude within a relatively short time. I'm thinking about consumer electronics. Sure. And um, and my hope is that they're able to make it happen. But the tolerances required are are very small. Um, and uh, the, you know, and and you also don't solve the tritium problem uh, with this as, as well. You have to still get the tritium from somewhere. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Moses was telling me. We've seen progress like this in consumer electronics. Uh, he says, you know, the, the laser, the NIF right now is very expensive, but you can imagine that we would have a solid state laser made. You know, they're, they're making great progress in making solid state lasers a lot cheaper. Those you would be able to, to blast much more frequently, right? The, the limiting factor in how often you can do the blast at NIF right now is because, um, you can only kind of run the, the flash lamp tubes that make the laser so powerful every four hours or so. They have to cool down. They have to do all this other stuff. So um, can it happen? It could. Is it going to be this great uh, panacea where in 20 years we're going to start building these things? From what I learned in reporting the story, I, I'm not convinced. All right. So just let's, let's just play a game. 20 years, no. Uh, what would you think the odds are of having a working fusion reactor that's actually supplying electricity to households in 50 years? In 50 years, I guess I would have to uh, fudge it and say it depends. A lot of the people I spoke with said, look, if you gave us more money, we'd be able to make progress uh, a, a lot faster. Moses is a big fan of a design which is more of a hybrid fission-fusion design. You have those, you kind of solve a lot of the blanket problems where you have your fusion blast in the center, and then it hits a blanket which is of um, uh, uh, basically nuclear waste, uh, depleted waste. And there's a lot of leftover energy in that waste, and you have the neutrons hit that waste, and, and then that catalyzes further reactions, and you get a lot more heat. He says that that really can happen in 20 years if we want it to happen. And, and uh, other people in the fission community say that that's not – excuse me, fusion community say that's not really feasible. Um, the standard answer, I would say, is I would say that there's maybe a 20 percent chance that in 50 years we will have a working fusion reactor. All right. So what about 100 years? There is a great optimism amongst everyone in the field that one day civilization will get to the point where we're using. So a thousand fusion. years from now. That's right. At a thousand years, as T goes to infinity, the chances that we're using uh, fusion for our energy go choices to 100%. go to 100. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in between now and then, it's a little. It's, it's hard to see where that slope of that line is uh, right now. How come I haven't heard a lot about fusion in the last? Maybe 20 years, really. Well, it's – I think it's a lot of story of frustration. The, you know, the early pioneers of the research uh, made big promises. And, you know, this was the, the 50s and the 60s. This was the nuclear age. This was 
um, you know, we can we can do anything if we um, put enough energy into it. And there were just a lot of, you know, nature put up a lot of roadblocks along the way. And so then after uh, hearing a lot of promises for so long and not seeing results, you know, Congress stopped funding a lot of these things to the extent that they were before. And, uh, you know, the the um, uh, the earlier energy crisis, the one back in the 70s, um, there was a lot of money put into fusion, but then that went away, and so did the money. So, uh, and then you also have the the cold fusion fiascos of the you know the late 1980s, um, which kind of gave everything a little bit of a bad name. Uh, but really, it's because there hasn't been a lot to report since then. We've been working towards break even, working towards break even, working towards break even. Um, now, finally, we're going to get to break even, and that's great. Um, and and the experiments that are going on, uh, you know, aren't just for the purpose of getting us energy in the future. There's a lot of interesting um, uh, science work that can be done. You can model supernova explosions with these little explosions that NIF. The the real reason NIF exists and the reason why it hasn't been canceled for going over budget is because it's used for the um, uh, to help. The stockpile stewardship program, which is to help ensure the the safety of the America's uh, uh, nuclear weapons stockpile. Now, now that we can't um, test them anymore, there's a comprehensive test ban. So there's a lot of reasons to do it uh, that don't include making energy. Well, I hope that uh, in the um, you know we have the column fifty, a hundred, and one hundred and fifty years ago in Scientific American. So I'm hoping that the March 2110 issue quotes from your article here and uh, talks about how ironic it was where you say that uh, ignition may be close, but the age of unlimited energy is not. And I hope those people 100 years from now in their uh, in their hovercraft <laughs> as they're as they're texting in their hovercraft because it's OK because it's on autopilot. I hope they're reading. Uh, see what we had 100 years ago and think that. All those poor people back then, thank goodness such great progress has been made. I, I certainly hope they get a good chuckle out of it. Michael Moyer's article, Fusion's False Dawn, is available in the March issue of Scientific American. A preview of the article can be found on our website and at snipurl.com slash mikefusion. Mariette DeCristina is the editor-in-chief of Scientific American Magazine. We talked about the rest of the contents of the March issue. March is here, Mariette, and I understand there's now dark energy in the brain of all places. Can you believe that? I can't, actually. You know, the good thing about March is that the sun is actually now out more, so the dark energy in the brain will maybe be ameliorated by the light outside. Interesting. And by the way, everybody who's now getting ready to write to us to explain how the Earth revolves around the sun and spins on its axis and that the sun is not actually out more, we know. We know. Yes. Thank you. We, we probably address this and ask the experts area of the website too. No doubt. So let's talk about the brain's dark energy. Obviously a term that the neuroscientists are borrowing from the physicists. Right. In in astrophysics and cosmology, what dark energy is referring to is this mysterious force that is responsible for the expansion of the universe at speeds greater than would have been anticipated, um, or I should say at rates rather than speeds. In the brain, dark energy is this unexpected activity that they found by looking at – well, let me back up just for a, a minute. It's when you're resting, 
say you're semi-dozing, you're kind of laying in your chair, you're kind of relaxed, or even sleeping. Once upon a time, we had this idea, or scientists had this idea, that the brain was pretty much inactive then, that, that you know, you were shut off, in effect, of your conscious thinking, then also your brain was not doing much. But it actually turns out to be quite the opposite. In fact, when you're not doing much, the brain is super active. And this is the brain's dark energy. And the question was, what is the brain doing when you're relaxing and, you know, semi-slumbering? What could you possibly be up to? One of the really interesting findings is, let's say you're just sitting in a chair, not doing anything, daydreaming, or maybe just sort of in, maybe you're not trying to meditate, but you're in a meditative kind of state. You're just sitting there relaxing, looking out the window. And you then decide to perform a task your brain activity actually goes down. Right, it does. Well, it goes down in the sense that it gets a little more focused as well. You know, what's happening is this brain um, dark energy, which scientists call the brain default mode network. And they use the word default because when you're not doing anything else, this is background brain activity that is constantly occurring, is all about the brain anticipating and predicting what will happen next in the environment. Um, this research by a guy named Marcus Rakel at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, the reason why he started to look at it was he began to wonder all this um, brainwave activity. When we look at, when scientists look at brainwave activity, they typically strip out what you and I would call noise. So you're trying to get that perfect sine wave, that up and down mountain range of brainwave activity, and there's all these little wiggles in there that scientists one thought, once thought was noise. Well, what Dr. Riggle asked was, could that noise be actually doing something? And it turns out it is. It is, it is by far the brain's greatest level of activity devoted constantly. And what it's doing is thinking about the world. It's thinking about interpreting the data that come in. It's thinking about planning actions that one might next take for a background level of consciousness. The brain at rest, quote unquote, is actually a hive of activity. And what it's doing is trying to sort out um, information that comes in. I mean, this is another another thing that, that made um, Marcus Rakel curious about this is we know, for instance, that six million bits of data go flowing in through your optic nerve from the environment around you. And then only 10,000 of those bits actually get to the brain's visual processing area. And only a few hundred of those are involved in consciousness and, you know, the conscious processing associated with that visual activity. So how on earth is the brain taking that little, relatively very small amount of data and then creating this very enriched, you know, very complete visual and, you know, sensory experience of the world around us? And scientists think this de default mode network is a key to that experience. A constant kind of reconstruction of reality. Right, exactly. And ruminating, you know, sort of considering what what data it has taken in so far, what it might anticipate happening next, and, um, you know, as, a, assembling conscious processing to match that. So that's our cover article. We also have a really interesting piece by Robert Hazen about the fact that the the mineral diversity on Earth is unique, well, unique as far as we know, because, as it turns out, so much of that diversity is the result of life itself on Earth 
creating the minerals that we find on the planet. We always think of of the planet as this uh, inorganic, you know, non-living environment that life then takes place on. But what this article shows is that life actually constantly remolds the physical non-organic environment. It's really interesting just how many thousands of the different minerals will not be found on the moon or Mars because life was involved in their creation. Yeah, I I love this article. This article is actually called The Evolution of Minerals. And one of the things, as you rightly point out, that the article does is the the author, Robert Hazen, suggests that you know we, we have thought of minerals for their timeless quality, but actually they've been quite they've been quite very you know, varied and diversified over time, just as life itself has, and that life has been the actor in this. You you mentioned before how, you know, Earth is unique, at least as far as we know, and that that is true. When Earth was first formed with, you know, giant pieces of rock smashing, you know, impacting uh, together, there were maybe 200 or so minerals created through the formation of the solar system and, and so on. And subsequent, and this is maybe, you know, 4.4, 4.5 billion years ago, a little bit more, 4.6 billion years ago, um, through heat and pressure over the next few hundred thousand years, about another thousand or so minerals arose through chemical reactions, heating, weathering, and so on. But then Earth went through a series of three more giant stages associated with the formation of life that wholly revamped minerals. So that now there are something like 4,400 on Earth, which is, at least as far as we can see, completely unique. And um, there was a, a period which the uh, Dr. Hazen calls Red Earth, about a couple of billion, two billion years ago, when life first gets going, when there's some, um, um, you know, early early forms of life, and in about 2,000 or so minerals arise there. Microorganisms make sheets of minerals like calcium carbonate that we now see in animals with shells. There was uh, an era called White Earth which starts about 700 million years ago with alternating periods of deep ice sheets and then hotter, warmer stages, which led to formation of various kinds of crystals. And last, and luckily, we live in the period known as Green Earth, which started about 400 million years ago when multicellular life arose and wholly changed through biochemical breakdown the makeup of the minerals on the planet again. So, yeah, it's a terrific article on how minerals have changed and how life and minerals back and forth have shifted each other. And one of the key things is that life is responsible for the oxygenation of the atmosphere. It, there was a very, very minuscule percentage of the atmosphere that was oxygen until living things started to produce oxygen and, and oxygenate the whole, the whole big deal here. And the oxygen in the atmosphere basically rusts the earth. Everything. Yeah. This is red earth. You're referring, Steve, to the, um, the, an event called the great oxidation event. And this starts about 2 billion years ago and really set off um, the, the first giant wave of mineralization, of, of changing varieties of minerals that we see in Earth's history. Where once you have oxygen out there to combine, because it's so corrosive. So reactive, yeah. To combine with all these other elements, you have this just incredible variation of minerals that become available to you. Yeah, I mean, we think of minerals as things that just kind of sit there and they're timeless and they don't change. But what this article shows is that they've changed in extraordinary ways over time. And it's fascinating. And it's also a good reminder that 
we, we always perceive things through the human lifespan. And when you can pull back from that and see things over geological time spans, everything sort of takes on the appearance of being alive, even the rocks. Right. Well, even they change. I mean, if you if we then change our lens again, you know, the solar system is evolving and changing this, the galaxies and, and so on. And in fact, the entire cosmos seems to be alive with change. And one of the interesting things Hazen points out is that if we're searching for life on other planets with our telescopes, we don't have to actually go there yet, is uh, one of the things we can do, in addition to looking for the direct signatures of life, biochemical signatures, we can look to see what kind of minerals appear right. to be on those planets because if there's just a handful, chances are it's a dead planet. But if we find another body out there with just an incredible variety of, of mineral forms, that might be a clue to us that there's life there creating those mineral forms. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, and that would be, as you say, we can look with our telescopes and we can see chemical signatures using special instruments with those telescopes and look for those signs of potential life. So uh, we have another article. Everybody loves worms. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good worm? Seriously. So worm grunting. We have an article on actual worm grunting. Why don't you explain what worm grunting is? We've, yeah, we have, an, we have an article on this amazing phenomenon, which is so counterintuitive. I mean, evolution teaches us, we were just speaking about evolution of minerals, right, and evolution of the brain. Evolution teaches us that survival is a good thing. So one would think that anything you do counter to survival would not be a good thing. And with worms, if you stamp on the ground, worm grunters do this, the worms will rise to the surface. Why would they do that thing? Uh, why? Because they, they come to the surface and now they're subject to, to you, who are just stamping and want to pull them off for, for fish bait uh, right. or we, other animal forms. Right. Why, why would they do that? A perfunctory and, analysis would be if you hear stamping on the ground, you would go deeper down to get away from whoever's making that noise up there who might be a threat. But no, they come up. Even so. Charles Darwin wondered about this puzzle, and he had an idea about it. He thought that maybe the worms were trying to escape a predator, moles, who are seeking protein in the form of wriggling worms. And the the thing is, that that's a nice just-so story, right? Just maybe the worms, this is what they do. Charles Darwin had this idea. but But how do we know that's what happened? And this is where this article, which is called Worm Charmers, by Kenneth Catania comes into play because he had this same question. Um, could we prove that moles, um, that they were indeed trying to escape moles who were digging and that they might rise up to escape the moles that were in tunnels below them? So uh, our buddy Ken here goes to Florida and he, he tracks along with some of these worm grunters, worm charmers. Right. So first he's got to find some moles. So he's driving down the highway and he looks for characteristic tunnels that moles form and he finds some and then you you know how are you going to get the mole out of the tunnel well some of the some of the tunnels were crushed by cars passing by so you'd wait for moles to come out and kind of fix the tunnel and thereby find them and once he found them what, what was he going to do with the moles directly well you can set them to work then back on the ground and then see what the worms do so this way you can directly test what the animals are doing you know when they interact with each other and lo and behold, when the moles burrow, they actually set up these vibrations that are very similar to what humans 
do when we stamp on the ground. And and so the worms will rise up to escape them. And what else is interesting about that is that there are other animals that have figured out, as human worm charmers have, that if they set up vibrations on top of the ground, the worms will rise to meet them. So the moles are are setting up these vibrations. The worms attempt to flee because they know that those vibrations mean burrowing moles and they come to the surface. So human beings have co-opted that vibrational form, which they mimic by stamping, to get the worms to come up. But so have these other species have figured this out. So was it herring gulls have also figured out that if they stamp on the ground with their big webbed feet, that they can get the worms to come up and get a, a meal out of it. And what's the other animal? Uh, there's a, a wood turtle that also stomps to drive up worms. Also with a big web foot, smacks on the ground, brings the worms up. Now, of course, the turtle doesn't know that it's imitating the vibrational form produced by the moles. It has just figured this out evolutionarily. Right. I mean, it happens. It proves to be a successful strategy for acquiring protein in the form of worms. And those animals that develop this successful strategy or can pass it on in whatever means uh, survive better. And, and that way the behavior continues. So the worms are caught in, in uh, I believe the expression is an evolutionary trap where they're survival strategy has now become deleterious to them. Well, there's, yeah, but it is and it isn't. So in some cases, this behavior is, you know, a survival advantage when the moles and, and you know, clearly when uh, Ken Catania was driving around, he found lots of mole tunnels. So there are lots of reasons for worms to rise up and get, get away from these moles. But in other cases, uh, other predators, such as humans or this herring gull or that uh, wood turtle, who can mimic that vibration, can take advantage of it. And the uh, we should say that the herring gulls finding was made by the renowned Nobel laureate Nicholas Tinbergen, actually, who, uh, who, who did a, a whole lot of interesting stuff on animal behavior that's, uh, that's worth checking out. So do, your, do a Tinbergen Google. I think I'll do that right after we're done here. So let's take a quick look at uh, our 50, 100, and 150 years ago space here compiled by Daniel C. Schlenoff, 150 years ago in Scientific American, the March 1860 issue, we wrote, gas for interior illumination, it is supposed, is a powerful disinfectant, and hence there is no contagion within the circle of its influence. Actually, we were then quoting, and then we wrote, we copy the above sentence for the purpose of disputing the inference that gas will protect people from the smallpox. Smallpox is doubtless uncommon among that class of people who burn gas for light in our cities, because they generally have sufficient intelligence and forethought to attend to the vaccination of their families, and its ravages are almost wholly confined to that improvident class who make no provision against the smallpox or anything else in the future and who live by the light of burning fluid. So... <laughs> 150 years ago, I mean, there's there's undoubtedly some classism involved in our interpretation back then. But 150 years ago, at least we were pointing out the difference between causation and correlation. I was just going to say that that's one thing. Also, what occurred to me is that it just 
that to me is a lesson in in microcosm. This is just a paragraph. What Steve just read to everybody that shows why it's so important in science to remove all your confounds. What are what, you know? Remove all the variables so that you can find really what is at the heart of something. And and to me, that's that's a lesson that science has more, much more thoroughly adopted probably at this point and can speak with, you know, much greater authority when something actually is a finding because you, you need to be able to remove all the potential things that could be interfering with, uh, with the conclusion that you're trying to make. Absolutely. And 150 years ago, we were pointing out that it was really a good thing to get vaccinated. And it is today. Go get your shots, folks. The March issue of Scientific American is on the newsstands and is also available in its entirety at www.siamdigital.com. We're running very long, so that's it for this episode. We'll roll out a totally bogus quiz as a standalone feature pronto. In the meantime, get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can see the slideshow illustrating six fun facts about the James Webb Space Telescope. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.